Jerry, it has been, it feels like more than a month, but it's been about a month since we last recorded. It's good to be face-to-face with you again. We are inside the Legends Room at uh, T-Mobile Park. Jerry, it's good to see you face-to-face. How are things, man? Uh, Things are going. It has been a crazy busy month, really, but the off-season in total. I I actually got a call today from a former general manager who I keep in contact with, and he said I was just trying to squeak in between the transactions, and then I realized if I don't call now, (laughs) we'll never get there. I know you had media day uh, not long ago. Scott was here. I know Andy McKay was in the house. A bunch of players, some of the, the newly acquired players. What was that experience like for you overall? Have you been informed of my dinner, the the dinner at Shea Depoto? We'll, we'll call it this past I have Friday not. night. Yeah, this Friday night. So, it's quick funny story. <clears throat> Excuse me, uh, Malik Smith. I was on vacation with my family in Hawaii while we were negotiating with Yusei Kikuchi. Scott Boris, uh, seemed like we were getting close and, and there was going to be reason for me to be back in Seattle. So I hopped on a plane, I came back to Seattle, and we, we had the, the dinner with Yusei and his wife Rumi and their translator. Great guy uh, at the Met. Mm-hmm. We, I think we shared that we the last story, one. heard story, yes. Well, the day that existed in between the, the Met dinner and Yusei Kikuchi's uh, press conference, which was January 2nd, I got a phone call from Malik Smith. And I was standing in my kitchen. It's about 6 o'clock at night in the West, which makes it about 9 in the evening where, where Malik is. And, I, and I'm, I'm cooking a steak. And Malik's calls were generally just catching up, talking, uh, questions. And he said, are you in a restaurant? And I said, no, no, I'm in my kitchen. He said, are you washing dishes? I said, no, I'm cooking dinner. He said, you cook? And I said, sure I do. He said, what do you cook? So I took a picture of it and I sent it to him. And he said, oh, man, that looks delicious. But when are you feeding me? And I said, you just let me know. So prior to media day, this past uh, Thursday morning, it, Malik said to me, you just going to play me or are you going to cook for me? And I said, I, well, I'll cook for you whenever you want. So he said, tomorrow night, what if I told you I wanted a steak? I said, I, I, I think I can deliver on that. He said, what if I told you I want asparagus? I said, then I will make those asparagus dance. He said, what if I told you I wanted some creamy, tasty mashed potatoes? I said, that's not going to be a problem. So Malik came over for dinner on Friday night with 23 of his closest friends. You're not serious. Yeah. we, we had, not, uh, No, he did not bring 23 people. All of our guys, Malik, Marco, okay. Mitch, all right. this uh, isn't like Justice, JP, all right. our, our front office group, wives, friends. It, it turned into a, a soiree in the backyard. It went on until... What wound up being the early hours of Saturday morning, but I, I feel like I feel like the steak and asparagus part of it came through with with flying colors. We had to bail on the mashed potatoes because mashed potatoes for twenty four can get a little gluey. Let's call. I mean, it. If you don't know how to do it. Yeah, I would yeah. say so. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know how, so I had to employ my sous chef, my lovely <laughs> wife, and and uh, she came up with a, a nice ham and scallop potato side dish that worked out quite well. So just to understand that you you. Grilled nearly 25 steaks. Yeah, which is to say 24. <laughs> and, and we ate all of them. It was great. Yeah. It was really, really great to get the invite for that, Jerry. That's cool. I mean, it's like your podcast, like co-host or whatever. But, you know, I'm sure that you'll, like, you probably just didn't have enough steaks because there were 24 of them. I just 25 would have broke the budget. Yeah, I, I thought you ignored my text. Perhaps I sent it to your burner phone. Uh, <laughs> so there it is. It. Absolutely. It that must have been the case. Really exciting times in the Mariners family. Right, Edgar Martinez elected to Cooperstown. This is something that we as an organization, we as a city and our region will be over the moon about 
for a long, long time. He'll be celebrated, of course, in August here at T-Mobile Park. What was it like for you when you found out the news that Edgar was going to Cooperstown? I was thrilled. You know, the weekend before, uh, decision day was, I believe, the 22nd. Uh, on Saturday morning, I wound up on the phone with Edgar, and, and it was probably the longest phone conversation I've ever had with him. You know, Edgar is generally not uh, a man of a lot of words. It's usually more shorter conversations, high impact. And uh, I, I spoke to him for a long while on Saturday morning. He was clearly excited. And, and while I don't think he was expecting this, he was anticipating it in a, in a fun way. And I was so thrilled for him, so deserving. And kind of like flags that fly forever, this is one of those things. You're in the Hall of Fame, it is forever. There's, we will, you know, our kids and our kids' kids will walk into the gallery at Cooperstown and, and you know, he will be there, it's, and, and rightfully so. I'm looking at your career pitching log against Edgar Martinez, Jerry. Uh, you got him to ground out back in 1993. You were pitching for the Indians. Uh, that same season, in fact, two days later, he singled to center field, but then Griffey was thrown out at home on the play. I don't know if that rings a bell at all or not. You struck Edgar out. In fact, you struck him out looking, which is saying something. It's, just, it's probably the only way it was going to happen. Yeah. And then, that's, a good, that's a good point. And then you walked him your final three plate appearances against Edgar Jerry. What do you have to say about yourself? Well, uh, it seems right in line with my <laughs> – that's what I do. And yeah. with Edgar kind of a little bit right too. 333 yeah. with a bunch of walks. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think Edgar – you know, actually Edgar was the, the last hitter I, I ever faced in my career believe it or not, in spring training. Really? Uh, yeah. Edgar was standing in the batter's box when I walked off the mound for the last time with the Rockies when uh, uh, there was clearly something wrong with my neck and, and I wasn't quite sure w- where it was going from there, and, and Edgar was in the box. I was 3-0, so it was, only, it was just going to end the same way the other at-bats were, were ending. But super uh, disciplined hitter, understood the game uh, – the ability to get a fastball in on Edgar Martinez was something in the neighborhood of zero. You just couldn't get in on him. He would just he would stay inside the ball, drive it to right center field, stay in the middle. I do remember the the ball that he hit through the middle with uh, with the when I was playing for the Indians in '93 that resulted in Junior getting thrown out at home plate. It wasn't. It was right in the in the mix when Junior was hitting his eight straight home runs. If you remember that, was it really? Yeah, it's a, we were on the tail end of that with the with the Indians, and you know, I, I so there was some magic around Junior, and that was if you remember the '93 season, while Junior had already played in, in All Star games, that was his like the the magnificent breakout was 1993, and and Edgar, I'll I'll go back to 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 this Edgar. Paul Molitor, there's a short list, Tony Gwynn, of guys that when they were in the batter's box, you just didn't know what to do with them. And, and he was one of them. So at a certain point, I just decided it was easier to walk them. Well, a reminder, as always, if you're not already subscribing to The Wheelhouse, uh, Colin O'Keefe, our fearless leader, has done a fantastic job getting us on basically every platform. So wherever you get your podcast, uh, please subscribe, and download, and listen. We're happy to have you with us on what is the 39th episode of The Wheelhouse. And, Jerry, you have made a couple of more moves, which you're not running out of steam, are you, Jerry? Uh, hey, let's talk about a couple of guys, Hunter Strickland and First Shed Long. Uh, I know Josh Stowers was somebody that you and the organization was really high on, former high draft pick out of Louisville and college outfielder, made his pro debut last year. You traded Josh Stowers for Shed Long in a deal, Jerry, that you just somehow couldn't keep your hands out of. 
there are there's no such thing as a deal we can keep our hands <laughs> out of. I, I think, you know, in this case, we do. We thought a lot of Josh Stowers. We still do. You know, he'll go on and do good things with the Yankees. Oh, it, where Josh was in his career, really the, the outset as a young center fielder who we believe has the tools to be an everyday player in the big leagues, it just so happened that over the course of this last year or so, but specifically this offseason, you know, adding Josh to a group that now included Dom Thompson-Williams and Jake Fraley and Braden Bishop, we believe each of the outfielders we have at the big league level, whether it starts with Malik Smith, runs to Mitch Hanniger, even Domingo Santana has, has played center field in his career. And each level, Kyle Lewis, you, you keep going and we're, we're stacked up with, with outfielders that play center. And then back as far as the Dominican Summer League or West Virginia, you've got guys like Jared Kelenic and Julio Rodriguez, who we believe have the, the physical ability to adapt to a corner and carry that kind of offense, but they can play center too. So Josh presented for us an area of depth and Shed presented an area of need. You know, this is a super athletic guy with real power, with real speed, who plays second base, and he's athletic and versatile enough to move around the field, which is something we talked about when we walk into the Mariners. Move around the field in what other capacities do you see? So we talked to him. He has, you know, he signed as a catcher, as a, a left-handed hitting catcher who had about 65, 70 run speed on, on really? a scouting scale, which is a fascinating It's worth noting. Combination. He's 5'8". Yeah. Power plug. You know, it, it is that he is, uh, he's 5'8". He's got 55, 60 power on the scale can really launch the ball. You know, he, he's still an, an above average runner, a 60-ish type like runner, and and an athlete who has played second. He's played some third. He's he's spent at least a day or two at shortstop. He's caught, uh, and he's played the outfield. So we introduced to him. I, I probably threw a number of names at him that he's never heard of, or or maybe now he's researching. I don't know. But we talked to him about coming into spring training this year and developing in something along the lines of a Tony Phillips or a Mark McLemore type move around the field role. You know, we believe he has the ability to be an everyday second baseman. We also believe he'll carry enough bat to play every day at, at a corner position if needed because there is some sock in the skill set. And he manages the strike zone quite well. That being said, if we can build that versatile athletic skill set with Shed, and we feel like we can, that now you've really got something. In a day and age where that versatility, it just it makes a roster so much more usable. And he was game. You know, his, his answer was, I'll do whatever I can do to help and, and get to the big league sooner than later. Ben Zobris is the name that most people think of in current times to do that. We've seen it firsthand in recent years with Marvin Gonzalez for the Astros. It does seem like, though, Jerry, despite the success of those two guys, because it takes a special player to be able to pull that off, so many players seem to be resistant to the opportunity of being a Ben Zobrist. And yet, you just mentioned the immense value that it carries for a general manager and an organization overall. Why do you think it's tough for a a young player to wrap their mind around that being a good thing? But it sounds like for Shed it wasn't, obviously. I, I think in general, players want to believe that a position is theirs, you know, and especially when you're young, each position has a different nuance, you know. There's a, the, the footwork associated with playing in the middle infield is very different, say, than playing at third base. The, the arm stroke throwing from the outfield is considerably different than what you have to do when you're turning a double play. On the infield, and you know, it, it, to be able to do all those, carry all those gloves, maintain that footwork, the, the the differences in the arm stroke, 
takes a discipline. But when you see the way it works for guys like Ben Zobrist and just ballparking $60, $70 million in career earnings, <laughs> there's a value. Sure. Yeah. And I guess the, the way I would separate Shed from, from a Zobrist or even from a Marwin Gonzalez is those guys came to the dance with shortstop as their primary position. And we don't think that's the way Shed will line up. We see Shed more second base, third base, and then each of the three outfield positions as a, as a possibility, which I think is more Tony Phillips-ish. And, uh, and if he does what Tony Phillips did offensively, we'll let him play wherever he wants to play. Tell us a little bit about Hunter Strickland. We know that he and Bryce Harper are BFFs. Other than that, what else do we know about him? Yeah, Hunter's, first of all, my, my first reaction to getting to know the guy is terrific guy. Uh, very easy to talk to, to spend time with. He was in the Seattle this past week for his physicals. All went well. And he'll come in with, with I think, at least a, uh, a fighter's chance of being the guy that pitches the ninth inning for us. You like that? I did. Very nicely done. Uh, he's, he has the most experience of the guys we have down there. It's still a, a mid to upper 90s fastball. He's got an outstanding cutter slider that he throws that's been a bat-missing pitch for him in the past. And as we've talked to Hunter, we feel like there are ways that we can help him in pitch sequencing that can only, I guess, maximize his returns. But a uh, super talented guy. He's running a 291 career ERA, has pitched in postseasons. He's, he's always pitched at leverage points in the game, whether as a setup guy or as a closer. And we felt like, you know, perhaps the, the issues that, that arose with Bryce Harper and, and, and that – gave us an opportunity. Otherwise, we wouldn't have had the opportunity of buying into a 30-year-old back-end reliever with big stuff uh, who still has three years of club control. Uh, you know, he comes, we signed him to a one-year deal, but it doesn't have to be a one-year relationship. The last time we talked, you had mentioned how the bullpen was kind of the last point of priority for you before spring training. Where do you stand on that now? You know, we've added quite a bit with Hunter, with Corey Gearin, Zach Roskop, who's of all these guys is the most unique. Because the immaculate of the, inning, Zach yeah, Roskop. He has done it. He has. He has. He has achieved. I, your, and I was. It was right before my eyes, Jerry, and I didn't even know that it happened. It happened. Ugh. I was here to tell you, and it's mostly it was wound. because we were we were in oh, the midst of just getting drugged. It was like the worst the game Dodgers. of all time. It really was a series of the worst games of all time. Where the the right hand power just launch fest at the ballpark here, followed up by Zach Roscoe <laughs> uh, just tidying just us up for the ninth inning. Pitches. You know, it, that group of guys joins Anthony Swarzak and then the young group that we have on hand. You know, guys that are in their mid-20s, like Dan Altavilla, like Nick Rumbelow, like Gerson Batista. Uh, there's so many. Uh, uh, R.J. Alanese, who's got a really good arm we signed as a free agent this offseason. We feel like we have a group of guys who, who can step up, but nobody who's really proven themselves over a full season outside of Strickland and Gearin. And, you know, it should, be, it should be fun watching the competition. And there's nothing to say that we won't add. It's, it's very possible that we'll do it uh, via minor league contracts, providing opportunity. But there's so many free agents right now that we feel like that, that there's still buying opportunities between now and spring training that we're going to stay open to. So you mentioned the uh, shindig at your place. It was, in fact, a shindig. <laughs> <laughs> uh, plenty of prime beef consumed. It sounds like J.P. Crawford, Malik Smith, Justice Sheffield were all there for that. And they were obviously here before that for media day. And they, Jerry, if they can play as well as they commanded a podium, I think 
you and the Mariners will be in pretty good shape come 2019 and beyond. I mean, they made it very clear, Jerry, that uh, they weren't wanting to be a part of a uh, step back or reimagination or whatever you would like to brand it situation. I mean, they are here to really kind of pick up the torch and carry it for the Mariners. Uh, what was it like for you getting all those guys together inside the ballpark? And you can really start to get a sense for the competitive spirit for those young players. Like with most players, I, I think my first answer or response to it is the fact that they're sitting on there on the stage is in fact a reimagination. That <laughs> I imagine them there. Uh, we we got to know them quite well over the course of this week or 10 days. And when I say we, our front office, our, our PR, our community groups, they spent so much time with us. And, you know, whether it was clinics or media events or the like, they're, they're extremely polished. They're well-spoken. They're very talented young players. And they really don't have an interest in, in being a part of a step back because to them, this is opportunity. And when they walk out there on the field, like I have said many times to our season ticket holders and and in public, uh, like these types of, of get-togethers, while we, from a roster perspective, may look at it as it was a step back, we're now we have a pretty good team on the field, and we feel like we can go out and compete. And for these guys, every game is a game to go win. They're not going out there with the intent that, well, I hope we're good by 2021. Right. They're going out there to win that day and get three hits and throw a shutout because that's what players do. Did you happen to see the inside of J.P. Crawford's sport coat? No. please. Really? Me. Yeah, and I, but I did see the sport coat. More importantly, I saw his shoes. I can't oh, pull that off. Oh, the shoes were. But I mean, Felix uh, can pull that off. That's right. Any shoes, all black shoes with spikes covering every square inch of them. That's a difficult... That's a difficult thing to pull off, but he did it very well. Um, the inside of his sport coat, Jerry, uh, let's make many uh, UW fans very happy. He, had, he has two Huskies, and the inside liner of his sport coat was a collage of color photos of his Huskies throughout the whole thing. That's magnificent. That's pretty slick. I did not know that. I mean, I'm trying to think of anything. I mean, let's face it. Guys like good threads at this level, right? But I'm trying to think of something that customized, that specific. I mean, I told JP, just wait till you have kids, man. Like, you better, you better get to know your tailor pretty well. It was pretty awesome. So then I, it would be a jumpsuit, not just a sport. <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, but he was uh, really enjoyable to get to know. We've talked about Justice Sheffield already, and Malik Smith, man, this guy will command any microphone you put in front of his face. I can tell. And truly, as I found out, the life of the party. Yeah. There's The thing that impressed me most about the three guys is, uh, and because they were here all week, we had a chance to, to maybe get to know them in a different way than a lot of the other guys. These are really smart young guys. They're, they're sharp. They put words together together. Their thoughts are very clear. They know they're good. They know what the opportunity is in front of them. And, and I thought for them to come into a new organization with – Malik Smith being a two-year major league player. And, and a second-time Mariner. That's right, yeah, yeah. however brief. And, I, and I'm probably never going to stop taking the <laughs> ribbing for that. But, uh, you know, Malik's two-year player. JP's got just about a year of major league service. And for Justice, it's just a couple of weeks. They walked up to the podium, and they handled it like they've been doing this all their lives. Uh, it reminded me of, of – I mean, it reminded me of watching you do your magic wow, without the sport coat. I mean, we had a we had a uh, seminar. Clearly, they were shade to Goldsmith for a while before. If you notice, they were full when they got to your place. That's why. <laughs> 
We haven't had a chance to really detail and dig into the J.P. Crawford deal. Uh, Gene Segura going to Philadelphia, J.P. Crawford, who had been on not only prospect lists, but at like the very top of prospect lists in baseball uh, for some time, comes to the Mariners. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the deal itself and then what it is specifically you like about J.P.? Well, the deal itself, as, as we started the offseason foray, one of the things, if we were to move Gene Segura, one of the things we did not have in our system was an heir apparent at shortstop. So we had spent a good deal of our, let's say, month of September, early October, when we were reimagining what we wanted the rosters to look like. Each one of our front office members got a blank roster sheet. So a 25-man roster with no ideas. It's blank, fill in the spots. And nothing is impossible. Any contract can be traded. All you have to do is you have to sign free agents for viable dollars. You have to put together trades that you think are genuinely possible and then carry over players that that you feel make the most sense for us. And in virtually all of those, J.P. Crawford was mentioned as as a future shortstop for our team. And uh, there were numerous different scenarios where we were going to be acquiring him. Uh, you know, it, sometimes it included Gene Segura, and sometimes it was other players. But he was clearly a target player for most of us. And therefore, when we started talking to the Phillies, and, and to be frank, we talked about the Phillies about more than just Gene Segura. There were other players throughout the offseason that we had discussed with them. And each time we brought up J.P., but the only way we were able to access JP were in trades for Gene Segura or at the time Edwin Diaz. Uh, he is a guy who has it's he has five tools. He has good instincts to play. He understands the 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 control of the strike zone, the ability to command the zone, has been inbred in, in JP since he was in high school. He just knows how. He's done it at every level of the minor leagues. He runs well, he throws, he has a, he has all the tools to be an above average shortstop. He just has not yet crossed over that, that hump at the big league level. And he, for three consecutive years, was ranked among the top 20 prospects in the game uh, by various outlets. And our thought was, after a struggle in early 2018, he really kind of stabled himself, or stabilized himself, rectified the wrong, so to speak. I think he went one for his first 25 and then after that, threw up something in the neighborhood of an 850 OPS the rest of the season. But opportunity dried up, some due to a broken hand, some due to the fact that he had lost playing time because of the, the one for 25 start. And we viewed this as an buying opportunity. We had the ability to go get a player that just six months prior, we didn't have any chance of, of accessing. So, you know, we took a crack at it. We believe this market will, will really be a, a better fit for JP. He's a West Coast guy and letting him play here in Seattle and take advantage of our opportunity. It's he's he can hit anywhere from 1 2 to 7 8 9 in a lineup. He can field maybe the most critical defensive position on the field and what we found out is that he has the ability to slow it down, not just the game, but he has the ability to slow his thoughts down and and make sense. That, that's how you command the strike zone. That's how you command the podium. And we feel like that's going to help him with the, the insurance or, or I guess assurance that he's going to play every day is going to give him the opportunity to go out and win a spot in the big leagues. J.P. Crawford, after his first seven games last year, batted 255, 369, 
479 for a 131 WRC plus, and that's it's pretty solid. <laughs> yeah, it's a, and we feel like he has a chance to be that guy, and you know, it's a this is more more of an opportunity than you usually get with a player who I think just last week turned 24. He he comes to us really with the world in front of him, and we feel like he is he gets lost in the shuffle on this one. Uh, a lot of what we've seen, even in the the prospect season that we're in right now, he's not really being counted as as an addition to our prospect system. But we feel like he's going to be here for the foreseeable future, and in many ways, he's younger than guys that are playing at Double A, who somebody's advertising as a future star. We got a guy who's played at all-star games at every level and is, is now ready just to be given the keys at the big league level. Whether it's on opening day or at midseason, he's going to get that opportunity here. Malik's is, as we kind of joked about, a guy you clearly have liked before in the past. And we saw him when he came to Safeco Field at the time. And I had to like, I had to laugh when they played Welcome Back, Welcome Back, Welcome Back when he stood inside the batter's box. That, that the was first brilliant. Time. <laughs> But we've seen kind of the igniter abilities that he has. What is it that you see when you watch him play? You know, it's the Malik Smith from the time he's been, really from the time he signed, he has always hit, he has always made his way on base, he has always stolen bases, and he has the ability to play all three of the outfield positions. There's a, And in addition to being maybe one of the small handful of fastest runners in the league, Billy Hamilton, D. Gordon, Malik Smith, it's a short list. Uh, in addition to that explosive speed, he's an excellent base runner. He's very attentive on the bases. So we feel like he just turned 26. He's going to be here for at least another four years. We're going to play him in center field, give him the opportunity to, to be a table setter for us, and just be disruptive. Uh, there's one thing I've, I've learned quickly about Malik is he's got that personality, kind of like D does, where w- if you give them the opportunity to change the game and, and create chaos, they do it really well. And, and we feel like with those two players effectively bookending our lineup, so to speak, uh, there's, there's a chance that we can do exciting things the way we thought about it when we had D and Gene hitting back-to-back. You know, these guys come in, there's no reason that between the two of them in a good year they can't steal 100 bases. It's, it's within their skill set. You bring up the base running, and obviously being a good base runner is more than just taking bags, right? When you are scouting a player, is the best way to judge that just simply eyes on the player? Because although there are metrics to judge that, it seems like those can be a little wonky at times. Very wonky. And I think of all the things we do, you know, the defensive metrics have gotten better and better, especially since the advent of StatCast and the way we track via satellite. But the base running in many ways is, is still an eyeball test. And some of the best base runners that I ever watched were not what you would call flyers. You know, Malik's is a flyer. D. Gordon is a flyer. Billy Hamilton's a flyer. There's Scott Rowland was an awesome base runner. I, I, D- Derek Jeter was an awesome base runner, not a flyer. He was a good runner. Uh, Jeff Bagwell, I, I would not qualify as a flyer, but was a spectacular base runner. They, they, they did things just the way they moved first to third, the way they push an outfielder, the way they take the extra base in front of the guy throwing. Uh, it's, it's just an instinct. And there's some guys have it and some guys don't. And when you're able to couple that natural instinct with that kind of 80-grade speed, which is what – Malik's and D bring to the table now you're talking because this creates it creates distraction for the pitcher it, it creates tension with the catcher it gets the, the 
hitters who are in the box a better pitch to hit more often than not. And they don't have to worry. The players in the box don't have to worry about action plays. There, there's As long as they understand that the, that the runners are going to be moving, now they can hit because what happens is the field opens up. So in, in the age of shifting, what happens when Malik Smith or D. Gordon is on base, the, the, the field is moving because they move, because Malik's and D move. Therefore, if the right hitter's in the box, he gets the benefit of hitting with a field that's no longer situated to combat his strengths, if that makes sense. Jerry, I'm very excited, as I always am, for Stump JD. Are you as excited There's, as I am? Not at all. <laughs> you're going you're to pull something out of some nether region. No, that, you know what I was going to say. I'm, I'm excited because I feel like this one is fair. In other words, it's not like quasi-Goldsmith made up. Like, not that the answers aren't true, but they're very just random. Obscure. And very obscure. And I'm, I want to take this opportunity on a public platform to apologize for, <laughs> you know, basically making you look just so foolish so many times. So many times. It is. Um, this is a good one, I, I do think. a good enough job myself. Well, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So in light of, I was inspired by Edgar in the Hall of Fame. Uh, the first Hall of Fame class, Jerry, was way back in 1936. There were five members a part of the initial Hall of Fame class. Can you tell us all five of the original Hall of Famers? Uh, Babe Ruth. Ty Cobb, Hunnis Wagner, Walter Johnson, Christy Matthews. Oh, my gosh, he's back. Oh, he did it. Jerry, I'm so happy for I, you. I feel like a parade. In, like, in record yeah. time. Do we have – can we rewind the tape? Was that, like, five seconds? That was pretty fast. One of the things <laughs> I like that that is a dramatic step up from is, all right, I gave you the answers. Aaron goes, all right, well, let me check uh, baseball reference to see if that's the right, right answer. Right, that's my favorite. That's my favorite. Well, I think I know at least one of the answers, but I'm going to have to check anything that you say because that could also be right. This is undeniably uh, the correct answer, and you crushed it, Jerry. You know what I find shocking is that Were you Cy reading Young it off my iPad? No. no. That chicken scratch Yeah, it's exactly what it is. Uh, Cy Young, not in the, in the first class. How's that happen? No, you're right. It's it's really interesting. I'm I'm always fascinated to learn things about Cooperstown and the Hall of Fame because obviously there's more to know about it than we could ever possibly remember or know to begin with. But they essentially had three classes, the first three classes, and then they had their first induction ceremony, like Edgar will be a part of this summer. And the 11 living members of those first three inductions went to Cooperstown for the first ever. And I mean... Can you imagine, I mean, for people who are thinking of making the pilgrimage to go see Edgar, which I hope there are many of you who will be doing that. Obviously, a lot of you did that for Griffey as well. I mean, the 11 living members for the first induction were guys like Connie Mack, Honus Wagner, Tris Speaker, Cy Young, Walter Johnson, uh, George Sisler. I mean, Babe. Can you, I mean, can you imagine being in Cooperstown, New York, and here comes the babe to this old-style microphone, if they even had that rigged up, if he wasn't just barking to the crowd, and they make their remarks, their first, the first-ever Hall of Fame speeches? I mean, it's just, it just kind of gives you goosebumps. It's pretty remarkable, and it's so cool. That's what's so beautiful about this game is just like Honus Wagner did, just like Babe Ruth did, just like Junior did, now Edgar will be doing this summer. It's pretty incredible. It's, it's true. It's timeless. And I've thought so much about those because as a longtime baseball nerd and, and collector of all things sure. baseball, there's a, that hit my sweet spot was effectively that group of players, the, the 36 to 39 group. 
Uh, I think one of the most remarkable things about the way the Hall of Fame has evolved is here in these last couple of years, whether it was Junior's vote total or most recently Mariano Rivera's, like the, the 100% vote. I, I didn't think I would live to see that because I thought there would be some old stodgy. I mean, if Tom Seaver can't get 100 percent of the vote, am I right? There's. I didn't want to say it. I'm <laughs> glad you went there. But <laughs> who doesn't vote for Tom right. Seaver? I'm, I'm left. But I, I think the same thing. Even back to the to the 30s and 40s, who doesn't vote for Cy Young on the first right. ballot? It's incredible. But, yeah, it's like 500. Maybe there's somebody else that'll win 511 games. Pretty cool stuff. We're excited for this summer. And Jerry, congratulations. You start for for nailing it. You're 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 one for two, I think, so far this year. But you're really one for one on fair questions. So I think you're a winner. Let's get to some listener questioners questions, Jerry. As always, you can always email the podcast. Just uh, simply go to uh, thewheelhouseofmariners.com, shoot us an email, and uh, we very well might read it and have it answered by the Mariners general manager. Uh, Ryan is checking in, Jerry, and he wants to know uh, what are some of the things that players need to show to move up quickly through the system? What does it take for a high school player versus a college player, guys who are drafted out of high school or college, that is? I think the same things. You know, you're looking for control of the strike zone, pitchers to command the ball, uh, moving it in and out, up and down. You know, we, we, we break the strike zone into quadrants, and, and you want the pitcher to show you the ability to move to all the different quadrants. There is the ability for a college player to move a little quicker if, A, he's – more mature in his ability to control the strike zone or the physical ability is such and I'll use an example like a Dan Altavilla uh, in our current system a guy like Joey Gerber you know if you have if you have overwhelming physical stuff and you know you can move three levels in a, in a season have at it we oftentimes won't allow that to happen with the high school players frankly because they're they're moving in a different social class it, it becomes really difficult at, a, at the major league level where the average player is probably about 28 years old and you've got players in the, in the locker room that range t- young 20s to early 40s. When you take teenagers and run them a year out of high school all the way to the big leagues, the, the, the social struggle that they have when they get to the big leagues is different than maybe the on-field struggle. So we may suppress or slow down the high school player just a little bit, but if you get a guy like a Griffey, when I was in Arizona, we had Justin Upton, who came through very quickly, like a Mike Trout. When you have those all-star generational talents, don't get in the way. You know, let them, let them run through and you know, try to time it. I think most players need something in the neighborhood of 2,000, 2,500 plate appearances. They need something in the neighborhood of you know, 350 to 500 innings pitched. To, to really make the, the journey and fully mature. But you're going to run into those exceptional talents that get there in 1,000 plate appearances or, or 200 innings. And, and when you see it happening, be smart enough to get out of their way. Colton uh, from Buckley, Washington is checking in. First of all, he wants to say that he's a huge fan of the podcast and very happy about it, that, uh, that we've been uh, starting to do this, uh, especially now that the New Year's rolled around. He wants to know a question. I'm, I'm sure that Colin will be fielding on uh, the wheelhouse inbox in the weeks to come wants to talk spring training jerry where to stay what to see most importantly what to eat all of these things are important to me not necessarily in the order (laughs) in which you spoke them uh what to see it's to me one of the great benefits of coming down to, to spring training is the intimacy of spring training the the players are close i think one of the one of the 
the most underused opportunities for for fans is coming out to the backfields in the mornings. You know, it's it's open and accessible to the public. We could literally house thousands back there, and no cost. You just roll in and, and watch. It's a watching batting practice. You're on top of the fun. The players are always in the, the whatever their loosest state. It's happening at 10 a.m. on the backfields in spring training. And they're typically engaged. It's the easiest place to get an autograph or to have a conversation with your favorite player, even if it's just while they're walking back to the clubhouse. That's, to me, one of the, the fun things to see. Um, where to eat. There, to me, and Should the, we have started the, the show with this yeah, to give you enough time? That's it. I'm going to try to I'm gonna summarize it quickly. Under the radar, good spot for me is a place called Andreoli Italian Grocer in Scottsdale. I'm big on it. I it's uh, hopefully I'm getting some cut of the proceeds as we send thousands their way during the during the Cactus League, but as uh, it is a triple D joint that, nice. that I went to a handful of years back and I frequented in the time since to the point where it drives my wife crazy because it's it is at least a 45 minute drive from where sure. we stay to to Andreoli about 92nd and Pima and now over near Talking Stick there's a, a great dessert spot. Uh, over in uh, in the Biltmore, it's called Frost, the best gelato in the world. There's, I, I mean, say, I was gonna best uh, gelato in the world. That I, that I, yeah, yeah, it's, I, I love the gelato. <laughs> uh, I will, I will cross the valley to get okay. That's Frost saying something. Gelato. Yeah, that that is one. There's there's also one of the 99 places that you must eat in the U.S. is right there at the Biltmore. It's a little hot dog stand. Oh, and come on. I swear to you, you're going to have to try it out. It's, the, it's on the Food Network list of the top 100 places to eat, like, before you die really? in the United States. And it's a hot dog stand in the Biltmore in are these Phoenix, like, Arizona. These, are these especially different hot dogs? They are extraordinary. There's, it's, I will say this. Like, I'm, I'm probably not in my normal state going to cross the valley to have a dog. Right. But I will go to have this hot dog. So... At least once or twice in a spring training, I will go get the. Can you is it, can you tell us just a, a tease? Is it the toppings? Is it the dog a, itself? They've got so each of them has a name. I like the Diablo dog. So it's a they have the the short leash dogs is the name of the the stand, and, and I like the Diablo dog. It's got it's got chilies on it. It's got jalapenos, and the way they cook the hot dog, it just jumps off the bun. And, and like with most sandwiches, because hot dog sandwich, right? Come on. I think we've had this discussion. We can't. But I, we don't have enough time. The bread, we'll lead off the next show with this. The, the bread makes it. So okay. Short Leash Dogs at the Biltmore. Uh, Andreoli Italian Grocer, two really right. under-the-radar spots. The Frost mm-hmm. for Gelato. You can't go wrong. Good tips. Very nicely done. I knew we could count, we could count on you. I'm going to chime in as a Wisconsin guy, and I know everybody's looking to get the best burger down there in the places that you can't get here in Seattle. Everybody goes to In-N-Out or Chick-fil-A. Go down five blocks the opposite direction from In-N-Out and go to Culver's, get a Butterburger, delicious Wisconsin fast food. And if anybody knows how to do fast food, it's people from Wisconsin. <laughs> so they'll lock it right down. And then echoing Jerry, you got to go to practice, 9 or 10 in the morning. It's free. It's like if you went to Ray Kinsella's farm, but it's just for Mariners players. So they're right there. They're on the other side of the fence. And it's like you're sitting on the bleachers with Ray Kinsella, but you're watching you know, D Gordon. You're going to be watching J.P. Crawford, Justice Sheffield. And then the minor league goes to get out there as well. So I'm personally excited to see guys like Julio Rodriguez, Jared Kellenick, and those types of guys once camp gets started. 
I just want to see Julio Rodriguez not on an Instagram video. So I want to see him crush a baseball in real life as opposed to on my social media scroll. So I've I'm, seen it, and it's pretty awesome. Yeah, I'm pretty excited for it. I'm very excited for it. That'll be on my top five things to do in Peoria. You know whose top five list that is on is our skipper, who is, <laughs> he is uh, slightly smitten with Julio Rodriguez. <laughs> Why wouldn't he be? We'll wrap things up, Jerry, around the horn. Uh, a reminder, of course, single-game tickets on sale now. And that's a good thing because, Jerry, we are really looking forward to Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, August 9th, 10th, and 11th. It'll be Edgar Weekend at T-Mobile Park. We'll have um, Edgar Hall of Fame bobblehead night on Friday, August the 9th. Edgar Martinez Hall of Fame celebration and replica plaque night on that Saturday. And then the replica street sign, very nice idea, on that Sunday, August the 11th. Nobody in the game does these kinds of ceremonies better than the Mariners, and it is going to be an absolute thrill to watch Edgar honored for those three days. You know what I think is cool is that the rest of the league believes that too. That's just not. That's our not just like a Homer impression. thing. Yeah, right. We, we the the rest of the league, Major League Baseball front off, the 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 home office in New York. Everybody understands how well the Mariners do this, and I'm really looking forward to it. I know Edgar is. He's had one warm-up for this. Sure, yeah. Uh-uh, but this is the big one, you know. And I, I can't – personally, I can't wait for Edgar's Hall of Fame speech because if you know Edgar and spend any time around him, the I don't know how long it's going to take him to – to, to write it, but I know it's going to take him three times as long to speak it because he will, he will be very thorough and sure. clear. Absolutely. Uh, you can always go to Mariners.com slash special events. The Mariners just somewhat recently announced uh, a lot of the promotions coming up for this year, including uh, I do very much like this bobblehead, the Mitch Hanniger five-tool bobblehead night on April the 27th. Uh, so the other shed. Our other the, yeah, shed. exactly, yeah. the other shed. A nod to uh, Tim the Toolman Taylor in many ways. So uh, mariners.com slash special events uh, should be good stuff there, and we cannot wait till August 9th through the 11th, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday for Edgar Weekend. Jerry, as always, man, it's a pleasure. We're going to start cranking these up on a more regular basis, which is very nice of you since your schedule is only getting more and more complicated. So thanks for the visit. Good seeing you. Love doing it, man.